2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Uh, I'm all alone in the studio. And I just wanted to tell you that my co-hosts have uh, projects outside this podcast that I think you would enjoy. Aaron hosts another podcast. It's called Coin Talk. His co-host is uh, Jay Caspian Kang, who's been on the Longform Podcast a couple of times. They are... Uh, hilarious and bumbling their way through the cryptocurrency bubble bear market, uh, the ups and downs. The show is hilarious. Aaron's amazing. Go listen to it. Coin Talk is the show. And Evan Ratliff, my other co-host, has a book out, full-on book. We talked about it a couple weeks ago on the podcast. It's called The Mastermind. It's gotten rave reviews everywhere that you can possibly imagine. The book is fantastic. If you have not bought it yet, Go pick it up, The Mastermind by young Evan Ratliff. Okay, here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Aaron Lammer here with Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff. They are my co-hosts. Hey, you guys. Hey, 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 hey. Great show for you today. What you got? Aaron's uh, going back to Silicon Valley. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm making my uh, annual tour of Silicon Valley. And let me tell you, it's a darker tour than it was several years ago. <laughs> um, we have on Casey Newton. Um, he has been writing for the last six years uh, for The Verge. Um, before that, I did not actually know he was like doing regional newspaper reporting. Um, and he has a newsletter out called The Interface, which I read uh, pretty religiously. We Me talked too. about um, why he launched that newsletter and what it's like writing to an audience directly as opposed uh, to on the open garden of the web. Um, he's someone that I've wanted to have on forever, and I, I only get to pass through uh, Silicon Valley once a year. So I used my uh, I used my card uh to uh, to bring him on and he um he was great and he's a, and he's a listener to this show i have two uh random and probably not useful casey newton thoughts which i would just like to express yeah. one of them is i feel like he has been uh taking silicon valley less seriously than some other tech reporters for a long time like his his tone has been closer to the dark folly we now see yes for a lot yeah he, he saw it coming earlier i feel like that's one the other thing is i just like to say he's in the office came for this interview taller man very tall man. Tall man. I would say, on average, our guests are shorter than I expect they're going to be. <laughs> and Casey, I would say, is about one foot taller than I would expect him to be. <laughs> the tall, tall man. 
Uh, I, that doesn't, there's no like payoff of the interview from this. He, he just is taller than you would expect from pictures of him. It's notable. That's all I'm saying. Um, if you're taller uh, than people think you are, start a newsletter about it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys ever, uh, I have like a really long torso and really short legs. And my wife found this Reddit. That's like four men who have long torso, short legs. (laughs) That's the most bullshit. My wife found a Reddit I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And it's all these guys who are like, did you know that Tom Cruise is long torso too? There's no way that Ann found that. Zero percent chance. Uh, so um, I don't know where I was going with that, other than if you have like a niche interest, like being a long torso, short legs person, and want to share relevant details, like what kind of styles look best on that, what uh, brands are cut for you. There's no better way to do it than with an email newsletter. As Casey and I discussed, uh, the best way, in my opinion to get an email newsletter off the ground is to be really specific, like which is, I think, what Casey does with um, the interface, which really recently has basically just been a like internal Facebook uh, news service. And uh, that's always weird because like Facebook is as big as like he was a local reporter. Facebook is the size of a mid-sized city in terms of its own employees. So really fascinating that someone is covering that sort of from the inside out. Um, and if you want to do something niche in that way, do it with MailChimp. Is that the longest windup I've ever had to a MailChimp promo? <laughs> Certainly the longest yes. torso we've had in yeah. the studio. <laughs> Just uh, let let this segment end and start the show. <laughs> and now here's Aaron with Casey Newton. Welcome, Casey Newton. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, you are the Silicon Valley reporter for The Verge. You've been at The Verge for a pretty long time. Yeah, I joined the site when it was about a year and a half old, and I've been there for six years, so it's been a ride. So you're like, you joined in the like early iPad era, and you, yeah, okay. So um, how did you get into all this? Like, what what was your route to journalism? Well, on the first day of second grade, they asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said, a writer. Uh, and I think, you know, you should honor those commitments. Um, I, I just had done a lot of early writing, like just writing poems when I was like five years old. And my teachers would put them up on the walls. And I just got nothing but good feedback for writing. And so I think it was just kind of reinforced in me from an early age that this was something that, you know, I liked doing and could get good at. So, you know, when I was in high school, I was the editor of my high school paper. When I was in college, I was the editor of my college paper. It was just like something that was part of me from a pretty young age. There's a lot of uh, high school and college newspaper experience on this show. And I'm curious, like, I was so far away from that world. Like, what is working on a student paper like? I think that high school newspapers are amazing because the front page will be some incredibly minor issue that has consumed the campus. And then the op-ed page is like how to fix the gun control debate and what to do about democracy and also like abortion, right? Yeah. Like like routinely in our student newspaper, we would tackle every major societal issue on the op-ed pages, you know, while writing about like, when can we get better pizza, you know, in the cafeteria on the front page. It's a bit of a microcosm for how people actually think, which is like, yeah, I'd like gun control, but I really would like free pizza, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, um, what point did you say, I'm actually going to do this and like do it as a career? 
Yeah. I mean, by the end of high school, I had a pretty strong idea that I wanted to do journalism school. And so I looked up a bunch of journalism schools. My guidance counselor actually said, just go to Northwestern. And so I applied there early decision and took my first year to uh, mess around with radio actually a little bit. But then my second year, I started working on the school paper there. And I don't know, there was just something really exciting about it. I, I got really caught up in the idea that you could call someone and just like say that you were a reporter and that they would call you back. Like it always seemed like a fraud at the beginning, uh, but it just kept working and was fun to do over and over again. Um, I will say like I had a couple of newspaper internships in college that like didn't go great and made me think like I might not want to be a journalist. Um, my least favorite thing to do in journalism is man on the street interviews. Like I hate interrupting people. Like my whole body cringes if I have to tap somebody on the shoulder in public. And I spent a summer having to do that. And I thought like I might, I might need to do anything else. But then I got this internship at the Orange County Register. And from the moment I got there, it was like a warm body, like throw at thing. And so they were like having me go write about like gangland murders in Garden Grove. And um, I, I remember one time they wanted me to write about something the attorney general of California was doing. And so they're like, well, you know, get him on the phone. And uh, if I could get him on the phone, the story was going to go on B1. And again, like feeling like this absolute fraud is just like, you know, 20 year old, I call up the the press secretary for the attorney general, say, hey, like I'm with the Orange County Register. And then he actually called back and, you know, you pick up the phone, it's the attorney general. He gave me whatever I needed. And then like the editors were having their afternoon meeting and I like ran over and I was like, hey, like I got the attorney general, like we have the story. And everybody was like super, like weirdly excited. Um, like I think the attorney general had probably been in the Orange <laughs> County Register before that day. But yeah. for me, it was like thrilling. And like, that's when I was hooked. It was like, I'm going to figure out a way to keep doing this. What um, path took you from there to The Verge? My first kind of life as a journalist was writing about state and local politics. Um, so when I graduated from school, I, I worked for a newspaper called The Times of Northwest Indiana, and I'd been hired as a general assignment reporter. And on my first day, they told me that I was going to be writing about um, a city of 20,000 people called Crown Point. And it was just kind of the most basic metro journalism. I wrote so many stories about zoning issues and people not wanting things to be built around them. But I also benefited from the fact that the mayor of that town liked to take out developers. He liked to take out his friends and family and charge it back to the city and then said that he was like sort of courting development to the town. And I wound up getting a lot of receipts and I talked to these people who he said he had been wooing and they said, we've never you know, met the mayor. We've never had dinner with the mayor. And uh, so I wrote that story and then he wound up uh, you know, not seeking reelection. And I remember at the time thinking like, I'm the luckiest journalist in the world. Like I landed in the one town in America like, where there's corruption and then like much much <laughs> later it occurred to me that oh and then no then started covering facebook <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah a lot later it was like oh um you know maybe this is going on in a lot of towns and that's why we should have more local journalism were you thinking during this period i'm gonna use my experience of taking down this mayor to go on to towns greater than twenty thousand, or like people have criticized us on the show for not having on more local reporters, more, um, you know, regional newspaper reporters. There was a time when someone would cover the 
Northwestern Indiana for life and maybe become the editor in chief. And that world seems over. So what's it like working in a situation like that where it's kind of a hot seat where you're like, I do not want to be here when I'm 40. Totally. You know, at that time, the path for journalists that we had been trained in was like, you go to a small town and then you go to a slightly bigger town and then you go to like a big city and like then the New York Times hires you. But the whole idea was like, you, you have to be a generalist. You have to be able to write about anything at any time. I graduated in 2002. The newspaper industry was like going through a pretty rough time then. So honestly, like the first like 10 years of my career, I thought just mostly about survival. Like it's like, how do I not be the person who gets laid off from this paper? Um, And it happened a lot. But yeah, after two years there, one of my best friends from college was a reporter at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix. And I went and visited and really liked it. And so I applied for like three different jobs there. And they finally hired me to cover the city of Scottsdale, which was a bigger town. And then that led me to cover the city of Phoenix and then the state legislature and the governor's office. And so I kind of just, you know, kept finding like slightly bigger perches to operate from. You now cover Facebook, Amazon, Apple, the biggest companies in America. What experiences from working, say, in the Phoenix machine do you bring to covering Silicon Valley? I think I mean one of the craziest things about the past couple of years is how how the tech story has become a politics story. When I started writing about tech, it was as a refuge from politics. Yeah. Like politics is a subject that makes a lot of people feel really upset. People will go out of their way to avoid reading about it. And people tend to be really pessimistic about the future. Right. And that was true in 2010 when I stopped writing about state politics. And today it's like, we feel the same way about tech. You know, when I, when I started writing about tech, tech was a subject of like great optimism. People would go out of their way to read those stories. Now it's like, oh gosh, like what are these companies done again now? I would even argue that it was went from being a science story to a business story to a politics <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah, that's a, that's a much better frame. And I like since we've been doing the show, I remember talking to people early on where I was like, are you disappointed you got into tech? But now it's just all about startups and unicorn valuations. That, those were simpler times. <laughs> <laughs> Completely. But, but like when you write about politics, you spend a lot of time thinking about like optics, like how do things look? You think a lot about how are politicians communicating their message and like, is that message landing? And I feel like when I write about Facebook in particular these days, like that is often the frame that I'm bringing to it is like, why are they presenting it this way? Like, mm. how is this thing going to look? Why didn't they think about how this might look before they did it in this way? Um, and like, these are questions of politics. Um, so there's like kind of the the big way that Facebook is a politics story now, which is like, how will it be regulated around the world? But there's like the smaller politics of it, which is like the the way they just try to position themselves as a, like a thing in the world. In a way that puts you in a seat similar to a media critic and it's, you're almost doing media criticism or like PR criticism for companies that continually deny that they are media. Yeah. Like when you write about the New York times, they at least acknowledge that they are a media company. So when other media companies cover them, you can use that lens. Like how does the fact that Facebook Amazon, all these companies sort of continually deny that they're in that lane affect how you talk about them. I think that whenever um, a company sort of presents itself as something other than what it is, you just have a great story to work from, right? Like all of these companies that you mentioned, they see themselves as these forces for complete good in the world, right? They talk constantly about this sense of social mission and, you know, bringing the world together and empowering entrepreneurs and that sort of thing. 
And they want to pay zero attention to the other stuff, like particularly before 2016, right? And so when you start to see that gap open up, there's just like infinite places to kind of dive in and poke. And they feel like very besieged, by the way. You know, they sort of feel like the narrative has run way too far in the opposite direction. And now they only ever get criticism and, you know, no one ever wants to give them, you know, any credit for making progress. And so like that's, I think, kind of the great ongoing debate right now between the big tech platforms, particularly Facebook and the people who write about it. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put uh, Casey and Aaron on hold for just a second. I want to tell you that we have a sponsor this week, and it's a uh, sponsor that we've had before. It is The Great Courses Plus. They're back on the long-form podcast, and we're happy to have them. Here's why. If you are listening to the show, that means you're a curious person. And if you're a curious person, you're going to enjoy The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service. It's like an online wonderland for learning. Unlimited access, thousands of lectures from the most engaging, passionate experts on virtually any topic you can think of. They've got courses on writing creative nonfiction, forensic history, cognitive behavioral therapy, travel, so, so many more. You can watch or listen to lectures on your own schedule, all in the app. And here's the thing. There's no homework. There's no exams. There's no like, tests at the end. This is not a thing that's going to hang over you. It's just a way to indulge your curiosity, learn a little something have some fun and uh, not feel like you have like uh, all kinds of things on your to-do list now. They've designed it to be a easy, relaxing learning experience. They also have a course I think you should check out. It's one I liked, Life Lessons from the Great Books. It's a deep dive into the greatest books ever written, autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, the journals of Lewis and Clark, George Orwell, half an hour lectures. You can get right through them. You're going to understand the book in a way you never did before. Go check it out. We know you're going to love it. It's The Great Courses Plus, and today you can get a special limited-time offer. Enjoy a full month of unlimited access for free when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Start your free month today, right now, at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Aaron and Casey. Do you feel like you are in a dialogue with these companies? Like when you're writing about the mayor of a 20,000 person town, you can pretty well assume that he's going to read your reporting on him and also see you coming from a mile away. And you have this newsletter, The Interface. I highly recommend it. I very much enjoy it. I, I read it religiously. And I would guess if I looked in The Interface's subscriber list, I'd see some at apple.com, at facebook.com. I don't know if people like try to like cover those kind of things up and use their personal email or whatever, but I'm guessing a significant number of your readers actually are employed within the industry that you're covering. That's right. So like, does this work like a sports kind of thing where people are like funneling you tips? Um, what is your relationship with the employees? I, I want to talk also about like the people at the top, yeah. but just by the numbers, I'm guessing you're subscribed to by a lot of people who are doing the work right. of keeping these servers online. Totally. And that, by the way, is very precious to me. And in a way, I'm writing first and foremost for them. You know, there's a lot of people that want to like sort of always write the hottest take about the platform, right? It's like, here's why everyone who works at this company should go to jail. You see this a lot on Twitter. One of the things I love about a newsletter is 
it's a really good home for like a nice medium take, you know, <laughs> where you sort of, you have a little piece of criticism in there, uh, yeah. but you don't feel like you have to write a headline that's going to grab people because if they read you four times a week when my newsletter comes out, they're probably just going to like dip in and see what you have to say and not feel like they, you know, have to have some absolutely massive takeaway. And Microwave I, warm, not exactly, piping hot out of exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. Just, yeah, ready, ready to eat. Um, and so I think because of that, I have been able to attract an audience that works inside these companies. One of the reasons I started the newsletter was expressly to get the attention of those folks. And, you know, I continue to believe that if I can bring together all of the reporting about these issues in one place, like add a little layer of analysis and then just kind of gently push on the same thing relentlessly, you can see change over time. And one thing I will say about these companies is that particularly in the case of Facebook, they are sensitive to public pressure. I think Facebook realized is that it is perhaps the most like vulnerable of any of the big platforms. I'm sure you have friends who have quit Facebook and do nothing but brag about it now, right? And I think they see that inside of Facebook too. It's harder to break up with Amazon, you know? And so because of this, one of the reasons why I think Facebook actually wants to hear from its critics, particularly when they feel like they have a fair point. I remember one time a Facebook employee told me, uh, you know, I had written something critical and I sort of said something like, yeah, yeah, like I know that one was a little harder on you. And I just remember he looked at me and he said, please understand this stuff helps us make the case internally for changes that we want to make. Mm. That when this kind of criticism gets published, when we know that this is the conversation, we can then push for these changes on the inside. And if you believe that these platforms are going to be around and that, you know, they're not going to be shut down and all of the executives are going to be put into jail, I think like what you actually want is to see them get better at things. And so that actually means calling them out when they do something good for a change. I, I remember Pinterest did this thing recently where they took some really important steps to block the spread of anti-vaccine misinformation. And it was a, something that Google had not done at that point and neither had Facebook. And I just got to write a rave. And I was just like, look at this thing that they did that makes so much sense that will have a public health benefit, you know, like Pinterest employees like that. And, you know, maybe I'll have to like wrap Pinterest on the knuckles for something like down the road. But I think that's the way you build up credibility. And that's the way you get those people to keep signing up with the fb.com email addresses. So you wrote about content moderation and um, Adrian Chen also has written about it and I think also talked about writing it on the show. But when Adrian Chen, I was shocked to find that was 2014. Yeah. Simpler time. Long time ago. Yeah. Long time ago. And it, and then it was happening in the Philippines. Now it's happening in Arizona, I think. Or That's was it? right. Yeah. yeah. And, and like 20 other places 20... around the world just for Facebook. So you visited this moderation uh office site, park yeah. site uh and what you found was the people working there do not get paid very much are deeply deeply traumatized by their experience working there are smoking a lot of weed and having sex on the job uh and i would say the most surprisingly not only are traumatized by what they see, but have internalized what they see. So in effect, the site is a breeding grounds for the kinds of things that are being moderated off of Facebook, the beliefs that are being moderated off of Facebook. And so to me, that feels wildly unethical or unsustainable. Like we can't project 20 years in the future and be like, well, the biggest employer in America is content moderation. It's a dangerous job, (laughs) but we got to sacrifice to keep Facebook running. And so I'm like, that can't go on. And then you, you go, well, Facebook's pretty smart. If they can't figure out any way other than to do this, other than to traumatize some stoned Arizonans, (laughs) then there must not be another way. And therefore, 
I would sort of advocate for like turn off the moderation switch. Facebook would become a fetid swamp of just uh, everything that's ugly. Yeah. And people would all leave. Yeah. Just like everyone left MySpace <laughs> when it got covered in ads. Like let it. I get. There's the take it down, take it up, and then there's just the let it die. Like. But like also, if we had meaningful antitrust regulation in this country, and there were multiple social networks, then right. like maybe there's one network that has no moderation, and then there's one that has you know strong yeah. moderation, and then like there's one in the middle, and we could kind of, you know, compete and and see what we felt right. You know, t- to your point though, like. I think that there is a middle ground where we just start treating moderators a whole lot better. Yeah. There are other first responder roles in society like policeman, firefighter, uh, social worker. And those jobs are so important to us that we all pay for them collectively as taxpayers. And so if you accept that social networks are where an enormous amount of our political discussion is taking place, then I think these folks start to look a lot less like unskilled workers and much more actually like highly skilled workers. And so I think you could double their salaries. I think you could provide support for them after they leave, um, the, you know, whether they got fired or they quit, like just sort of provide supports for them and then just do simple things to improve their workday, right? They shouldn't have to click a Chrome extension every time they want to go to the bathroom. Like there's a very low hanging fruit here that would turn these jobs from something that I could never imagine myself doing to at least something that I could maybe imagine myself doing for a year, you know? So I think that if we like cast the debate around treating people better and supporting them more, I mean, Facebook had record profits in its last quarter. This is not something that is going to put the squeeze on their future growth. It might even let them grow faster if people felt better about using the platform because they knew that they were taking care of all of their employees, not just like the full-time ones in Menlo Park. That's a totally fair and coherent viewpoint. You don't really think that Facebook is going to do that though, right? Like I feel like there's an inherent like tone in most of the writing about this that, uh, you wouldn't like bet on these situations improving. Well, I'm going to keep writing about it. I mean, yeah. like this is the perfect opportunity for journalism. Right? Yeah. Like to me, it, there's an obvious injustice. There's an endless supply of stories like the ones that I told. You know, yeah. my story is based on interviews with seven people and they have 15,000 moderators around the world, right? Um, I'm still doing this reporting. I'm still finding out things that are blowing my mind. And there's just going to be um, a wave of stories. I'm contacted every day now by journalists around the world saying, hey, do you know any moderators? Moderators in France? Do you know any moderators in Norway? People are really waking up to the scale of this industry and how different it has turned out to be than I think any of us thought. So I just see it as this amazing opportunity for journalism to do what it does best. Can I ask you about the reporting of that story? Yeah. So this company that runs a Facebook moderation site is not Facebook. It's something or other. It's called Cognizant, and it's one of maybe a a large handful of companies that do it for Facebook. Classic business name for this that also sounds like it's the fake business and a movie about this topic. Wait, one quick fake business thing is that um, the craziest poster, which I think it's in the story, but the craziest poster that I saw on the site says, Cognizant, empathy at scale. (laughs) Which I was like, that's like the most black mirror poster I've ever seen. Yeah, so... Like, what are the challenges of reporting on Facebook, but it's not Facebook, it's Cognizant? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of challenges. On the Facebook front, Facebook hires ex-CIA people to track down leakers, and they're very good at their jobs, right? And so anybody who wants to talk to me internally at Facebook without permission is absolutely putting their job at risk. And like, if they are not very careful, I mean, you know, they could be fired the day they contact me. So I mean, like that stuff is- Have you had sources outed before? Um, 
I don't want to talk about that, okay. honestly. Yeah. Um, but going back to on, the cognizant yeah. implant. Yeah. Something like that could never happen at cognizant, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the problem with writing about the contractors is that they sign these non disclosure agreements. And the NDAs have some good aspects to them, right? They compel the moderators not to like share our personal information if they happen upon something about us. Um, so that's a good thing. But then of course it also makes them feel more isolated. They feel like they can't even tell their friends and family members about what's going on. And so, yeah, like when the first person got in touch with me, um, they were a newsletter reader, by the way. Uh, and when we hopped on the phone, like the first thing we did was like kind of talk about security and like what we were going to do to you know manage their privacy. Do you look at the newsletter as like a way to find new sources? That's why I started it, honestly. Because, you know, I was on the Facebook beat for a while. 2016 happened. I honestly had no idea what to do for like the first eight months after 2016. Like if you look at a lot of the work that I had done up until that point, it was like very access driven, right? Like I had, you know, I would interview Mark Zuckerberg or I would, you know, interview Jack Dorsey and we would just talk about their grand plans um, to improve the world. And after 2016, I was like, I can't write this kind of story anymore. There's no appetite for it, right? It feels like the world is burning but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it was about a year later that I finally thought that I was seeing so much amazing journalism that was being done by other people. Yeah. And it was scattered all over the place and it was hard to keep track of it. And so that's when I went to my boss and I said, can I just start a newsletter about this? Um, one of the benefits that I predicted was that people would more closely associate me with this beat and they might start leaking me like better stuff. And that's now happened like three or four times like during the first year and change of the newsletter. And it feels like tech particularly is it's a very collaborative community based report. I wouldn't have predicted this in my movie. I would predict that everyone would be like closely guarding their notes. But actually what you see is a lot of people's reporting building on each other's and saying, OK, I haven't like looked into Instagram, but here's like someone who really knows Instagram. Read their article and hear my thoughts on it. How do you think that that culture emerged? Because it's since you started at The Verge, really. Yeah, it is so true. And it's something that I love about The Beat is that the reporters are all basically friends. Like I have a tech writers meetup in San Francisco, like quarterly people just get together and they come and they hang out. Um, there's no real point to it other than, you know, getting to know each other. My theory about why this is developed is that these companies are so big and there are so many stories to be written that people are almost relieved when somebody else grabs another piece of it, right? Because it's like one less thing that either they have to worry about. But at the same time, as you said, our reporting can build on top of each other. I also think that at a time when the media is under siege, like we look at each other more as like friends and allies now than we ever have before. You know, and when I say under siege, I mean from like media critics, but also like the economy is really rough and you sort of like never know when you might want to, you know, get another job. But to me, it's so cool when like, you know, one of my competitors on the beat, you know, like I'm thinking of, I mean, there's so many amazing writers on the Facebook beat, by the way, like um, Sarah Fryer at Bloomberg, uh, Shira Frankel at the New York Times, Deepa Sita Raman at the Wall Street Journal are like just three who I'm like linking to in my newsletter all the time. And the minute any one of them has a scoop, like the other five like are like retweeting it. It's like, hey, like, look at this great piece. And um, I think that's awesome. And like, I don't know to the extent that that's happening, like in other parts of media world, but I think it'd be great if it did. You've experimented at The Verge with a lot of different ways to deliver what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you're currently the host of a game show. That's still well, running. We did a season of it. Okay. And, <laughs> like, the, I pitched that before I pitched the newsletter. And yeah. like when we did it, I 
found that I like doing the newsletter way more than I did the podcast. I always want people who are pitching podcasts to me to make one episode before they fully invest their passion in it. Because you actually yeah. kind of know, like, I just like to sit around and like shoot the shit with yeah. people. Like I would do this. I we yeah, even this wasn't recording. I right, get to meet yeah. Casey Newton. I read his <laughs> newsletter all the time. Like, but um, you know, people actually realize what they like doing, and uh, it does seem like the newsletter is a natural fit. Um, tell me about like the uh, ramp up of the newsletter. Yeah. So in one way, the newsletter is just blogging, and like I've I've always loved blogging. Like yeah. I was blogging in '98, man. Like back <laughs> in the day, like on my like my little like public account when I was in college, like you could just like do a little blogging, and I, I've loved it. It's the best way to develop expertise in a hurry because if you don't know it, you can't write it. And every time you go try to even just capture what happened in the day, inevitably you're going to have a question, you're going to have a thought. And when you're blogging, it just encourages you to develop this really long memory for stuff, right? So much of blogging is just remembering. And in a time when I feel like, you know, you can have the the memory of a mosquito because each day just brings some, you know, fresh new set of calamities to consider that I feel like there's this weird new value in journalism of just like remembering that. In terms of how the newsletter ramped up, definitely put it out there as a lark. You know, my editors were like, how much of your day is this going to take? And I was like, I don't know, like an hour or two. And that did turn out to be a lie in retrospect. Like (laughs) most days it turns out to be like a three or four hour project, right? So I mostly do it in the afternoons and kind of do my reporting in, in the morning. But I thought one good signal was when I created the newsletter, all the first people who signed up were tech reporters, which was like a great sign to me because I figured like if they like it, they're going to tweet about it. And like then I'm going to find, you know, kind of the next few customers. And then inevitably, once uh, the tech reporters did start tweeting about it, like then that's when you get the folks inside of Facebook being like, OK, like what is being said about me that I can only find out about in this newsletter? And like then they sign up. Yeah. Right? And then other people at other companies start signing up because, you know, it is a little bit like a sports page and like maybe like the other team is down and like you want to read about why they're down and. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of grew from there, but I think like any blog and by the way, like I encourage any reporter who's thinking about this to at least try it. I think that it will change your relationship to your beat. I think you'll get new sources. I think you might write better stories. And um, a great yeah. person to start it with is MailChimp. Mm, tell me more. They're the sponsor of this show. Ah, very nice. <laughs> um, I think when you're starting a blog, you do want to pick a niche, right? Like yeah. if you told me you were going to start a newsletter about Apple, I would like tell you to pick something much more specific, right? Yeah. So like I think you, like, you don't want to do self-driving cars. You want to do like self-driving cars in Arizona. Yeah. Figure something like that out. And then but once you do it like as with blogging like when you find the niche you will find the thousand people who are obsessed with it and you'll have a nice little thing going for yourself yeah i notice i'm a listener to um bill simmons's podcast mm-hmm. and uh it started as a sports podcast and uh, as he's built it out uh he added pop culture and now it has technology and those feel like the three niches to me where you could wake up basically any morning of the year and be like got to get something out by this afternoon. Is there something to talk about? It's like, uh, definitely there is. There's yeah. definitely, in, in fact, there might be several things to choose from to talk about. Yeah. Um, I mean, the cycle is just, so when you're actually like doing this on a day by day level, like 
at what point in the day do you decide what the newsletter is going to be about? It dip, I mean, it depends on the day, which is like the most boring answer. There are definitely moments where I wake up in the morning. You know, the first thing I do when I when I wake up in the morning is I just like search Twitter to basically see what Facebook stories broke overnight. And sometimes there's one where you just think like, oh, well, that's the thing. I have the benefit of being on West Coast time. And so by like 3 p.m. West Coast time, like yep. the day is essentially already over. And I'm probably going to have a pretty good idea of what the big story of the day was. And then I send the newsletter out at 5 p.m. Pacific, which is a time that I pick because I figure that if you work at a tech company in Silicon Valley, you can't leave work at 5 p.m., but you probably don't want to keep working. So like maybe I can grab you for 10 minutes. And um, like there's never a shortage of news. Like this week that we're talking right now, it's like the third day of the week. And I actually don't think a Facebook story is going to be the lead item, or at least not for these first three days, which is like a pretty unusual week. But yeah, there's always something. Do you find yourself building and changing your ideas as you write like okay i'll just say this week i think it was the apple news plus rollout yeah. was tuesday yeah this is wednesday now we're talking uh it's on monday yeah. on monday was apple news rollout right and people who followed apple kind of knew what was coming although people didn't know exactly what it was instantly like the news started pumping out like people had been touting wall street journals being included but it's actually just like six like reheated like yeah. old lunches <laughs> right. from uh the wall street journal so when you take on something like that like where does your take on that emerge and and how do you think do you outline in advance do you check in with other people who like what are you thinking about this yeah. Yeah, my favorite thing to do is like a thing happens and then you just like hop on signal and you just back channel with like 10 people used to work at these companies. You know, I also like I have great colleagues at The Verge. I bounce ideas off of them. And then, you know, again, like because you're blogging and you're returning to the same set of subjects like time after time, you do tend to come to it with some point of view. With the Apple News thing, it's like the thing that I become religious about having worked in media my whole life is you have to rebuild your direct connection with the audience, like whether that's via email, whether that's via podcast, like like stop fighting the algorithm, like go find your audience and like serve them something directly. Apple News is trying to blow up that direct connection, right? So yep. like I have this sort of like natural antipathy toward it. What was interesting about that story that, you know, as it happened on Monday was, yeah, the Wall Street Journal is going to be giving away like a lot of stuff, but you're not going to be able to find almost any of it is like sort of how it was presented. And so sure, if the journal wants to give away like eight stories that they were never going to get paid for anyway, in exchange for a little bit of incremental revenue, like that seems okay. On that particular one, though, what was weird, so I wrote that one on a plane because I was flying to New York and I had finished the take and I was like, oh, I can't believe I actually like finished the dang newsletter before I even sat down in New York. My newsletter is done. I'm getting <laughs> yeah. an Auntie Anne's pretzel and yeah. going home. <laughs> exactly. And then uh, Bloomberg reports that the journal is going to, it plans to use the revenues from Apple News to hire 50 more journalists. Bold. At which point I'm thinking... And by the way, how does Apple News like decide how to pay much publisher by a completely opaque engagement algorithm? They see how many times a subscriber taps on your story and then they pay you some unspecified amount. So I'm thinking, well, how much engagement like is the journal going to need to hire 50 people? So at that point, I have to go back into my take and I have to like account for this new thing that has happened, you know, in order to be intellectually honest. And uh, yeah, so that take wound up being like a lot more complicated than I thought it was going to be, you know, but that's like the way of all journalism. The Verge is part of Vox, which is part of the Apple News Plus bundle, which you, you know, Disclosed, noted in your yeah. story. But 
having seen, I feel like I've already seen this. Like I, I had a product in, on the in the app store. I remember newsstand. I remember when I ever tried all this shit five to ten years ago, <laughs> yeah. and like all these magazines had like a iPad team. You know, yeah. hired fifty new people to make their iPad app. So I feel like there's a sense of deja vu. But in a larger sense, you've been part of uh, Verge, which is part of Vox, which participates in this ecosystem. Yeah. Um, when you tell the story of how all of publishing went onto Facebook and then Facebook cut off all their traffic, it's like, that story is about me. Completely. That's my traffic <laughs> yeah. that it cut off. Um, like, what's it like, like doing this inside the beast? Does it even matter? It totally matters. And I, you know, I, I could point to a bunch of stories where I have noted that like my personal fate is very much wound up in <laughs> like what becomes of these platforms and I can never escape that. But because I was writing about Facebook at a company that, you know, as you mentioned, was trying to figure out if there was a real business opportunity on Facebook, I had a front row seat for what was happening. And as you started to watch the carnage unfold, it did sort of radicalize me around the idea of like, go build your direct relationship with your audience. Do you ever, like you describe the person in Facebook who's like, I love the interface because it gives me internal fuel to talk about these things. Are you ever in a meeting at The Verge and you're like, don't like go all in on Facebook, you know, <laughs> like direct relationships. Like that is actually a media idea that uh, someone at The Verge can either accept or not accept in their own strategy editorially. Totally. And uh, I mean, I should say, I, I think my colleagues at Vox Media are super smart. They do not consult with me, they, like, nor should they. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they've been really, really smart about how they've approached Facebook. Like, you know, when you look at what Facebook is, you know, four or five years ago, and of course, BuzzFeed, we should say, like, really led the way on this. And BuzzFeed got up to an audience of something like 687 million people uh, a month. And if you accept that media is an advertising business and someone had told you, like, you're going to be able to reach a monthly audience of six. 687 million people, yep. including on Facebook, like you would invest heavily against that. You're yep. in a thing like, holy, like we've won media, right? By doing that. We just need your soul. <laughs> <Turns out, laughs> right? um, but then Facebook changed. And I think all these publishers had their eyes wide open to the fact that there was platform risk, but there's no opportunity without taking risk either. And yep. it wasn't as if Facebook promised anyone that this traffic was going to be available forever. And you know, I just like have come to accept that if you're in the media business, you just have to accept that it is going to change continuously throughout your career. That if you have an audience now, you cannot be confident that that audience is going to be around even six months later, right? Again, unless you're building some kind of direct relationship. Um, for you, being in one place this whole time, what have you seen? Uh, like The Verge launched as like a gadget site yeah. and is now like deeply enmeshed in a like censorship debate um what has the ride been like and you live in san francisco yeah. right so not only are you in the belly of the beast in your employment you are also in the belly of the beast in that like if you go get a beer after work you're probably sitting next to a tech employee <laughs> right. almost certainly actually yeah like i think the ride has been like very similar for me as it has been for a lot of people over the past like six years which is like moving from a space of general optimism about technology to a sense of mounting dread, right? And I think you could have felt that like whether you were living in San Francisco, writing for a tech publication, 
or not. You know, I mean, it is just kind of something that we have all learned along the way. Of course, like being able to tell that story is really exciting. When I first started writing about tech, I remembered it didn't really feel that vital, you know, because like my previous job had been covering the state legislature in Arizona and, you know, maybe some state agency would have a funding cut and then a bunch of people would like lose housing subsidies. And there would just be like these very like concrete consequences for these folks. And I do remember, I mean, I got the offer to cover tech and I I wanted to do it so bad. I mean, there was never any question that I wasn't going to do it. But I did remember thinking like, am I going to feel a little silly writing about these little social networks and apps that are on my phone? As much as I love them, like, does it really have like the gravity of what I was doing before. And what I couldn't count on was that Facebook was going to grow to 2.7 billion people and, you know, was effectively going to be like a large country in its own right. And as that's developed, I've just tried to like understand that more and more and like tell people what I've found out about it. How do you tell human stories within a company that is the size of a country? Like, I mean, I think your, your moderation story does it very effectively in talking about a single office with a single set of employees. But um, assuming that you can't just go to a Arizona content moderation time, like what have your forays in trying to create both human stories and I think stakes, I guess, is the biggest question? Yeah, I would say that I think actually like other journalists are much better at this than me. Like because other journalists, like again, that's why I started the newsletter. They're actually traveling to Myanmar, to Sri Lanka, to Germany. They're sort of watching, you know, hate crimes that may have been fueled on WhatsApp like unfold in real time. Like I think it's actually other reporters that are doing that job really well of kind of telling that human story. Writing about the content moderators has been a thrill for me precisely because I get to do some of that myself as well. And I get to introduce you to someone who might not technically be a Facebook employee, but who has this job only because of Facebook and tell you a little bit about their life because it doesn't look like the life of any Facebook employee that you've previously thought about. I think, you know, you're sort of talking about the move from like science to business to politics, like in terms of how we we write about tech. And I think like science and politics don't always leave a ton of room for telling that beautiful individual story on a day-to-day basis, particularly business, right? You're writing about people in their professional capacity. When people are talking in their professional capacity, it's all buzzwords and jargon, and they want to tell you about how they're optimizing this or optimizing that. Like You're not getting a sense of them as people. Someone once uh, said, I don't remember who on this show, that all business reporting is either a puff piece or a hit piece. There's really (laughs) not that many other business stories out there. (laughs) Yeah, I think that like you could probably broadly assign like one of those categories to anything. But I would hate it if people said that about the kind of work that I'm trying to do day in, day out. Like to me, hit piece has the idea of like you have some outcome in mind, right? Like you want this politician to like not get the nomination or like you want this company to be you know, like prosecuted or something. And that is like the one point, even though like I'm allowed to write with a lot of like point of view, I just try to be rigorously neutral on the question of like, what should be the ultimate disposition of these platforms, right? Like there are certain things that I think that they should do, like, and I'll talk about them in the small terms when it comes to the big stuff. Like I'd actually rather just kind of throw up my hands because I want to see what happens. Um, And I think that if I had a very strong point of view about like, you know, is Twitter good or bad? I'm positive it would make me a worse reporter. Doing this stuff in a newsletter rather than, let's say, the opposite of a newsletter, I guess, is like a print publication. You have the chance to write about what you see coming, then write about it like when the wave hits, and then write about the beach cleanup after the tsunami. 
Um, and I sort of know about what stories are hitting right now. The story of Facebook pivoting to privacy is one of the more like wah, wah, wah <laughs> yeah. kind of stories. But but what do you see on the horizon? And, and like what? how are you gearing up for 2020 and what you do? Yeah. So like what's on the horizon? Well, you mentioned like the one big thing, which is that I sort of believe that Mark Zuckerberg has looked at his data and now believes that we've sort of already seen the peak of the newsfeed and we may have seen the peak of Instagram. And if that's true, then these kind of social feeds that you thumb through like mindlessly for hours, like their days might be numbered. Obviously, they're not going to disappear overnight. They're still going to make a lot of money for Facebook. But Mark Zuckerberg has to find a new thing. And he's saying that the new thing is going to be private messaging. Like, is that actually true? Like, gosh, I don't know. seems like that's going to be really hard. His like top lieutenant just quit the company over it. Um, so, so that's an amazing story to watch unfold. And that's a place where like I'm actively reporting and trying to see what else I can find out. I think you've already seen two of the Democratic candidates, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, have made sort of big tech in general uh, centerpiece of their campaign platforms. And every candidate is going to be expected to have an answer about what do we do about the size of these platforms and their power. And so I think you're actually going to have candidates talking about tech policy in like democratic, like primary debates, which is going to be yeah. really surreal. And they got Yang in the mix too. And you got Yang in the mix, the internet candidate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's going to make it. Yeah. You're going to, he's also not the last internet candidate. You only need totally. 65,000 donations. Someone on 4chan is going to get 65,000 donations like immediately. 65,000 is nothing. That's the most upsetting thing I've heard all day. I think day. we could probably get 65,000 <laughs> donations from listeners of the show hey, to get me donate. in the People should donate to longform.org. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, all that's happening. And then, and then like on the Republican side, there are all of these weird alliances where like Ted Cruz kind of agrees with Elizabeth Warren on some of this stuff. And so, so does some of that actually turn into real tech policy? And you know, I was in D.C. a couple weeks ago, like meeting with staffers on the Hill, trying to understand is any like tech policy coming basically? And uh, the answer I got was like, well, no, probably not. Like the Republicans are trying to confirm as many judges as they can. And the Democrats have like 47 open investigations into the president. But two years from now, if we have a different president, if the makeup of Congress is slightly different, like this stuff could arrive. And like when it does, like I think it'll be in a big way. What would you say to a uh, 22 year old yourself who was, uh, but it was 2019 yeah. other than like, wow, this is horrific. I preferred the time when I was growing up. Um, what would you say to someone who wanted to do what you do? I mean, you took a pretty unusual path to being a San Francisco tech reporter. Um, would you just jump into blogging and newslettering? When folks ask me this question now, the two words I always give them are cultivate expertise. Like, there needs to be something you know more about than anything else in the world. It's a dark time for journalism in a lot of ways, but it's a really exciting time in this respect. If you have the subject that you're obsessed with and it's like sufficiently niche, but there's an actual audience for it, you can start a newsletter today. You can monetize it directly. You can publish stuff on the open web, maybe a platform like Medium where it might get some like pickup, some viral distribution. You can start building an audience and it's not going to pay all your bills overnight, but like you only need 500 subscribers paying you 500 bucks a month to be like grossing 30K a year in revenue, which is more than I made when I started my first newspaper job. More than you make it a, as a Facebook content moderator. Yeah, completely, right? <laughs> so like I look at that and I think like that's what I would want to do. It's not perfect for everybody, Like, but if let's say you went to a state school and you settled in a mid-sized town and you don't have a lot of debt you can start a media company today and like it might actually be really really good and you might create a bunch of cool opportunities for yourself 
for you when you swapped, uh, I think you were at the San Francisco Chronicle was yeah. your last job before the, ver- was that, were you writing about tech for the Chronicle? Yeah, so the, oh. I mean, the Chronicle changed my life. They said, please come write about tech for us. I knew a couple of editors there who used to be my editors in Arizona. And so that's why they hired me, you know, on the basis of two phone calls. I'd never written a tech or business story in my life. So they changed my life. Um, so as like you went from zero to 60, as you went from no tech reporting experience and you achieved some sense of expertise, like what was it like writing about tech when you're like this? I don't really know very much about this. Almost everyone in this town knows more than me. Um, how did you build that expertise? I wrote about so many stupid companies that I never should have. I mean, yeah, like they're all out of business. They're, now. Oh, completely. You know, when the big, main difference between writing about tech and politics is that in politics, when you're writing about state politics, like nobody cares you or wants you for anything. So your inbox is super quiet. When they find out you're writing about tech for uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, your inbox every day, there's like 60 pitches in there. And like 59 of them, you're like, I can't believe it ever pitched this, but inevitably one would catch your interest. And the really cool thing about the Chronicle was that we were all sort of flying blind in terms of like what was going to be successful in this era. And so I would just kind of pick things off the stack. There were also companies that were interesting to me because I was using their service. So like Dropbox was coming up at the time. Evernote was coming up at the time. Box was coming up at the time. And to me, like one of the first thrills was, you know, either getting pitched by those folks or just like emailing them being like, Hey, like, I'd love to meet the CEO. And they say, yeah, sure. Let's do it. There were a couple of CEOs that were incredibly kind and patient with me and would sort of like sit with me for a long time and just kind of tell me how business works. Aaron Levy at Box was one of those. Um, Phil Libin at Evernote was one of those. Um, Dennis Crowley at Foursquare was one of those. They liked talking about how these things worked and you know none of them pretended to know more than they do, but they were so smart about it. And so I could just sort of feel myself learning. And you know the nice thing about writing for the daily newspaper is that you're writing all the time. And so you have like an opportunity to get less dumb fast. Tech is a rare industry in that I think reporters and tech founders, while they now seem like one will have to murder the other one, they're actually quite like-minded. You know, you you wouldn't say that necessarily about the people who cover Wall Street, I don't think, but like you're both tech enthusiasts. Like you, you convey a genuine enthusiasm for the evolution of the San Francisco technology industry. I know this seems crazy now, but at the time, you know, it made sense like that you would sort of be trading notes and probably some of the stuff you've talked about with the newsletter with people who read it, who work in these companies, like you're both like throwing around the same ideas. I I can't think of any other industry that really works that way. It's true. I mean, like, if you want to go really abstract, I mean, a company is also just a story, right? It's like you see some kind of like dots out there that you want to connect. And so you do it. And then you meet with a storyteller and you like you tell them your story. And so like, there's this kind of like this natural, like vibe. And you know, we got a lot of deserved criticism in those days for just sort of like, blindly accepting that all of this stuff was good. And I think in retrospect, you know, I probably like would have written at least some stories differently. But, you know, the criticism that I remember most from the time was from like 2010 to 2012, all anyone talked about was how we were in this bubble, right? Like yep. it was the dot-com era all over again. It was all going to end in tears for all of us. And I was super skeptical of that because everywhere I went in the entire world, people were just like staring at their phones. <laughs> I was like, you either have to believe that people are going to stop staring at their phones for some reason, or you have to believe that we're not actually in a bubble and that was something i think that we turned out to be right about yeah when did the bubble it didn't even burst i just got like a 
toxic film all over it or something. I mean, it turned out that like venture capitalists were just going to absorb all these losses. And so I'm sure some pension funds were hurt, but like it was never going to be a replay of the dot-com era where, you know, everybody's 401ks went up in flames. A lot of money got made. Like a class of small to medium-sized businesses became the biggest businesses in America. Completely. And by the way, like supported a lot of tech journalism. You know, I mean, it was like, had tech not exploded, like I don't know what I would be doing now. When I was covering politics in Arizona, I lived in terror of the day that Gannett was just going to tap me on the shoulder and be like, we can't pay your $35,000 salary anymore. Yeah. And then at that point, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know what I would have done. There was not another newspaper in Arizona for me to go write for, right? So I benefited from the tech industry growing and being able to kind of be a, a hanger on and report about it. Does this, having this direct relationship avenue for yourself now make you feel more confident? Do you sleep better at night? 100%. I Because... I just, I know what I'm doing now. When I was, you know, sort of like in this period, like after 2016, before I started the newsletter, I would just kind of work on these one-off stories, you know, like go explore some aspect of Facebook. You know, some of them were interesting and did well and others of them kind of went nowhere, but it didn't feel like it was building toward anything. I suppose in some grand sense, I was trying to develop a better sense of Facebook, but I didn't have like a specific set of questions I was trying to answer. It's like, now I have those questions. I posted them on the website, right? So that you can actually go see what questions I'm trying to answer. And and, you know, I get to do this work in real time. I get this amazing feedback from readers every day now. You know, no one would ever leave a comment on your story saying good job. But every day now I write the newsletter and people just write back good job. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the most heartwarming thing in the entire world. And, you know, I'm also convinced like that there's a real business around it and that um, it's going to like create all sorts of opportunities. So, yeah, so I feel really, really good about it. For people who'd like to um, subscribe, where can they find the interface? Uh, you can go to theverge.com slash interface. Thank you, Casey Newton. It was my pleasure. Hey, that is the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Casey Newton. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Tyler McCloskey, who uh, came to us as our intern through Pit Writers. Thanks to Pit Writers. They hosted us uh, for our Wesley Morris live episode recently. We thank them. And also, of course, thanks as always to MailChimp. If you'd like to get in touch, it's podcast at longform.org. See you next week.